0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Lauren Groff read her story, Annunciation, from the February 14th and 21st, 2022 issue of the magazine. Groff has published four novels, including Arcadia, Fates and Furies, and most recently Matrix, which came out last year. Her second story collection, Florida, which was published in 2018, won the Story Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award. Now here's Lauren Groff.
1: Annunciation Some nights, in my dreams, I find myself running through those hills above Palo Alto again. It is always just before dawn, and as I run, I smell the sun-crisped fields, the sage, the eucalyptus. The mist falls in starched sheets over the distant hills, the ones that press against the bay, and I can hear nothing but my own footsteps, my own breath, once in a while a peloton of cyclists whirring out of the morning fog that swallows them up again. I descend, going ever faster through the quiet, wealthy neighborhoods, across the empty black river of asphalt that is El Camino Real. Then when the road flattens out into mountain view, I am flying, and I see at last the great strong-armed oak that spreads its grace above the whole block. Every time, though, I awaken before I can lift my eyes to the converted pool house covered in moss and bougainvillea and ferns, which I have not seen in 20 years and which I won't see again in this life. My parents didn't come to my college graduation. Instead, they sent a dozen carnations dyed blue and a gift certificate to a clothing store for middle-aged women. I would give my left foot to be there, my mother had said, near tears on the phone. But her voice was drowned out by my sisters screaming at one another, the dog barking. And when she put the phone down to stop the ruckus, she got distracted and never came back. It is true that one of my sisters had a dance performance that same weekend, another had a soccer match, and another had final exams... And even if these things had been deemed of less importance than the eldest child's college graduation, my two brothers, who were still in high school, could not be trusted to resist having a party in a house vacant of parents. This was why, after walking across the stage and tossing the mortarboard and hugging my friends, I came back alone to my dorm room, dodging my roommates' families who were loading all their stuff into cars. I closed the door and looked for a long while at my own neatly packed boxes, the stripped mattress. I took my toiletries, Moby Dick from the box of books, a sleeping bag, a pillow, a hiking backpack full of clothes, and slipped out, leaving everything else behind. I didn't say goodbye. I told no one where I was going. I didn't know until I was outside in the softly setting New England sun that I was turning toward the west. I had been given my grandfather's enormous Buick when he died, and there was still a packet of his pipe tobacco, a tube of his mustache cream, and a little Bowie knife in the glove box. These three things summoned the ghost of him into the car as I drove, and it seemed to me that he was protecting me when I stopped to rest for a few neon-lit hours in a trucker's lot outside a highway strip joint, or when I cruised some small-town grocery store for the cheapest and most abundant calories. I had only a pocketful of change and a half-tank of gas when I rolled around the curve and saw San Francisco in its dark glitter before me. I'd visited libraries along the way to check an internet bulletin board, where I had advertised the Buick for sale, and it happened that I arrived an hour or so before I agreed to meet the car's buyer in a hospital parking lot. I pocketed the Bowie knife and felt a pang that I was trading my grandfather's ghost for a paltry thousand dollars in cash, but told myself that surely the dead desired the living to eat. For a month, I had the upper bunk in a Chinatown youth hostel, a life swept clean of family and friends, an emptiness that I could fill in whatever way I wished. I wished to go hungry until dinner to save money, to walk the hills of San Francisco, asking at every bookshop and bar for a job. Nothing was available, at least not for me. When I squint back through time... I can see her again, this restless, ill-clothed, stringy-haired, half-starved girl who could not, for shyness, look a bookshop manager in the eye. At night, I lay in my top bunk, listening to the two shiny Brazilians assigned to the bottom bunks as they pulled their mattresses to the center of the floor and had gentle, wet, endless sex. Once I had to go to the bathroom, and when I tried to climb down soundlessly, a hand grasped me around the ankle, and a voice from below invited me to join them. In the bathroom, I stared at my face in the mirror, trying to see if the new person I was becoming was someone who would have a threesome on the floor, with Brazilians so beautiful it was hard to see their faces for their glow. I decided that I would instead be a person shivering in her pajamas on the disgusting puce couch in the common room. I regret this decision, as I regret all the times in my life that I turned away from living. My money was dwindling, and I submitted my resume to a temp agency. I went in on a Friday to take a typing test, and before I left, I was offered a job all the way down in Redwood City starting on Monday. For hours in the library afterward, I scrolled the internet bulletin boards for a place to stay, and when I had almost given up, I saw Griselda's ad for a converted pool house in Mountain View. The rent was cheap, because the renter was required to do assorted daily chores. Some, Griselda admitted in the ad, unpleasant. Men were preferred. I ignored this last bit and took a bus south and walked a mile and saw the cottage for the first time in a kind of spectral dusk. The place sang to me in a register straight out of the fairy tales I'd loved as a child. It seemed a place built for a titania and puck and little volatile men who grant three wishes. There was an enormous dog guarding the gate of the big house, an English mastiff of more than 200 pounds that opened its mouth as if to bark, but gave only a series of dry coughs. Griselda had had his vocal cords removed, she would tell me later. She looked astonished when I said that seemed cruel, that it was like taking away a human's ability to speak, and she responded that this was nonsense, that of course dogs couldn't speak. Also, surely, she said, it was less cruel than kicking him when he barked too much. I rang the bell outside the gate and waited, then rang it every five minutes until, finally, the door opened and a shadowy figure emerged who pulled at the dog's chain until he backed up, then looped it around something so his orbit was small, and at last she stood before me, peering out the gate. I had never met a person like Riselda in my life. She was as tall as I am, rather tall for a woman, but I saw her as a strangely wizened child. Her blunt, inky bob was held back on one side by a plastic beret, and though her face was round, its skin had wrinkled into a topographical map. Her eyes were sunken, their positions vaguely semaphored by eyeliner that fell in crumbs down her cheeks. Her neck was extremely long, and her body, in descending, swelled ever outward from her fragile shoulders until it ended in two purple, ankle-less columns overflowing a pair of cracked patent leather slippers. Who are you, she said. What do you want? I heard even in these few words her German accent, which also seemed like evidence that she belonged to the world of the black forest, wolves, dark magic. I told her that I was there to rent the cottage, that I was quiet and responsible and punctual. I handed her my resume through the gate. She did not take it, but looked at me for a long time and told me that I wasn't a man. I said that I knew I wasn't a man, but I could do whatever a man could do, that I was as strong as a man, which certainly wasn't true anymore after my month of starvation. Griselda sighed. Ah, so she is a feminist, she said. I was a feminist once, but then the robbers came at night, and there was no man here, and they tied me up and took everything I had that was good. This gave me pause. In the pause, I saw the little house suddenly began to slip away from me, and so I said, what, they even stole your feminism? Then she blinked, and her face widened. It was a miraculous sort of unpleading, and she laughed a large, loud laugh and clicked her tongue and said, well, yes, fine, 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 you take it. I don't know why, but I like you. Tonight, I said quickly, and held out the roll of cash that was my entire worldly fortune, save $23.64, which had to keep me until my first paycheck. She sighed and took the cash and removed the key from her keychain and put it in my palm. Tonight, fine, she said. Tomorrow you begin with the chores. Gladly, I said, and without even looking inside the cottage, I ran back to the bus stop, throde it northward, sprinted uphill to the hostel, packed my things, spent a second in the kitchen considering, then threw into my backpack the dustiest of the pasta and rice and ramen and cans of beans and bulk boxes of Chinese green tea and the crusty oil and salt and pepper, all things that other hostel dwellers had left because they wanted them to be used, I reasoned, knowing, even as I stole this food, that I was beyond the pale. The cottage was cloaked in darkness when I returned. I opened the door, and the place seemed to embrace me. I didn't turn on the light. I saw sharply outlined by the moonlight a wood stove, a kitchenette, a shower and toilet behind a glass wall. Best of all, stretching across the entire ceiling, there was a vast skylight showing the huge oak's muscular branches and the stars sharp between them. I went out the back. I found that Griselda's pool had been filled with white gravel that glowed in the moonlight, and that the roots of the tree made a smooth and beautiful stool and table. There was a sound inside the tree, like a soft, low, constant hum, which I took to be the movement of the tree's sap in its immensely slow circulation, or its long and meditative respiration— or even the way the tree sang to itself in its gladness at being so strong and so alive on a chill, bright night like that one. Inside the cottage, of course, there was no mattress, only my sleeping bag. I slept on the carpet and woke in the morning to a shower of light falling through the oak branches, falling warm and good upon my face. Griselda's tasks for her renter were, as advertised, unpleasant. She showed me how to unlock the gates, how to fill the food and water bowls for the mastiff, how to scoop up the huge quantity of poop he left on the strip of astroturf at the end of the range of his chain, and how to spray down the acrid expanse until the smell and the flies were somewhat mitigated. The dog watched me from a bamboo thicket that was pressing itself against Griselda's sprawling 1960s ranch house. It was a ramshackle place in this neighborhood of neat and lavish mansions. I was also to scrub the dog down once a month or so. Griselda said airily, waving her hand, "'He stinks!' And though it was true that the dog needed many consecutive washes to stop stinking, he and I looked at each other and tacitly agreed that I would not be the one to bathe him. He weighed far more than I did, and his teeth were long and yellow." Why, I ventured to ask when I was safely away from him, watering geraniums in the giant pots in the courtyard, was the dog always on a chain? But instead of answering, Griselda sat down on one of the wrought iron chairs she'd scattered here and there and asked me if I knew that she was the daughter of an industrialist in Germany. Very, very wealthy. Pins. Some kind of pin nobody else in the world could make. When she was a child, every Christmas Eve, after the department store in her town closed for the night, it would open just for her, little Princess Griselda, and she was allowed to run up and down the aisles and choose any toys she wanted. How magical it was in that empty store, with its sweet evergreen boughs and oranges and the smell of feuerzangenbowle in the air. I listened, thinking it was odd that when Griselda spoke, she seemed not to be telling a story, but rather to be reciting something that she had memorized verbatim. Perhaps I told myself she loved to tell stories to create a past she never had. And who was I who had just erased my own past to blame her for this? It took me two hours to finish my chores that first day and would take me an hour every day from then on. When I was done, Griselda hefted herself upright with a grunt, saying, "'Wait, I have something for you,' and disappeared into the house. She came out with a huge jar the size of a human head, half full of honey. "'A sin what my wealthy neighbors throw out,' she said. "'Wait,' I said. "'You found that in the trash?' "'Well, yes,' she said. "'But don't worry, it's not poisoned. I had some in my tea this morning. And look at me. I'm still alive.' That Monday, there were 20 temporary workers like me assembled in the conference room of a squat, despondent yellow brick building that was the Department of Human Services in Redwood City. We had been hired by a consultancy firm to help digitize and streamline the social workers' files on each child in the system. I hovered near the bagel table during the orientation PowerPoints so that I could slip as many bagels as possible into my backpack, each a whole meal I wouldn't have to buy. In the shadows on the other side of the table, there was another woman poaching the bagels, and I disliked her immediately, partly because she kept snagging the ones I was about to take, and partly because she offended my aesthetic sense. She had long, pale, unkempt hair to her waist with a fuzz of dandruff in the center part, a strange orange tint to her lips and fingernails, and was wearing an avocado and tan, striped, high-necked, shirt and skirt combination that would not have been fashionable in the 70s when it was first imposed upon the world. Her glasses were enormous, with yellow lenses that darkened when she stepped outside into the sun and which gave her a kiji look in any light. There was a thick funk to her that reached out to me even across the table. Anais, she had written on the name tag sticker on her chest, though she looked more like something biblical, a Judith or Esther or Hagar or Zipporah, a prophetess, a martyr, a believer who loved the ache in the knees after a long session of prayer. When, in the afternoon, we were paired off with sample folders, each containing a fictional child's case notes, so that we could practice either keying in answers to an online questionnaire or creating a 500-word narrative of the child's life, I watched with growing unease as all the people I wouldn't have minded being paired with went off together until, in the end, I was left with Anaïs. She sighed, looked me over with narrowed eyes, and said, Ugh, all right. All right, I snapped back, though being her partner was not in the least all right. We sat side by side at our paired computers. She blazed along with the data entry, but because I was vain about my writing, I was so slow with the narrative that I was only a few sentences in when time was called. Anais leaned in to read what I had written, and I held my breath and tipped myself away from her smell. And finally she said, No, no, this won't do. You're being too fancy. You've got to be simple, clean, in and out. Get it? I must have looked as stung as I felt because her voice softened. She said... You gotta understand, we're about to see some pretty heavy stuff with these kids neglect and hunger and rape and broken bones and a bunch of other bad stuff. And if you're writing all that fancy prose, you're gonna feel all that badness in you. But if you're sharp and cold, it won't get to you so deep. See what I'm getting at? You need to protect yourself, sweetie. I've always had difficulty with tenderness that comes to me unexpectedly. Perhaps it was also true that by then my beautiful solitude had slid a little into loneliness. My eyes filled with tears. Anais leaned even closer and put her hand, stinking of something strange, on my face and said, oh sweetie, you'll be okay. When we were given our first real folder to process, I saw that Anais was right. The child in it had a life that was relatively good compared with many we would see, but still a great horror radiated out from between the lines. There were many different social workers' notes documenting the discipline problems of this small boy. The diagnoses and medications, the cycling into and out of foster homes, all the way back to the initial trauma and the separation from his mother, who had been deemed unfit because she had left her baby with a paramour who had somehow broken the little boy's leg. I wrote my narrative as quickly and cleanly as I could. Then, while Anais was finishing the online form, went to the bathroom to cry. But once I stood there in the stall, resting my head against the cool metal, I couldn't. Something was stuck inside me, huge and uncomfortable. When I returned to my desk, I understood where some of Anais's odor came from. She had taken a small container of orange powder from her battered pocketbook and measured out a careful spoonful. I watched, astonished, as she swallowed the powder down, staining her tongue and teeth orange. Turmeric. It's my medicine, she explained, daring me to say something. Witnessing this only added density to the enormous, immovable object inside me. When I got home to the cottage, I had the idea to put on my running shoes and go out into the delicious coolness and try to run the bad feelings off. I went through the expensive streets of Mountain View in the dusk, and though I could not yet run far, and I still couldn't cry, the lump inside me dissolved enough that I felt relief. I returned to the cottage to find a gift from Griselda outside my door, a beautiful armchair. On the note, in a spiky and elegant hand, she wrote that she had noticed I had no furniture yet in the cottage, and that someone like me always needed a separate place to sit and think. The following months became a plate of four strands, the dark horror of my job with all those damaged children who burned beyond their folders into the world at large, the increasingly long and ecstatic runs I began to take every night after work, Anais, my co-worker, and Griselda with her stories and her gifts of rescued cast-offs. One morning as I scooped up dog shit, Griselda told me that she had once been a model in New York in the 1960s. She showed me a torn-out magazine photo of a dark-haired woman who, except for the extremely long and elegant neck, looked nothing at all like her. She said that back then she went to parties all the time, really scandalous parties, and she knew everyone. Lou Reed, David Bowie, Andy Warhol. In fact, she had been in a sex film of Andy's, but under an assumed name, of course. Oh, of course, I said politely, scooping, scooping. But as much as Griselda spun her stories around me, Anaïs, who'd begun to interest me, was resolutely silent. She had pinned above our shared desk a photo of a tiny child of three or so, with long red braids on either side of her face. She was so striking that I had to mask my surprise when Anaïs told me that the girl was her daughter and that her name was Luce. Afterward, I glanced at Anaïs's face surreptitiously throughout the day, seeing this woman whom I had believed to be a spinster or uninterested in sex suddenly as a mother. I was so young, with a distorted vision of youth, and had assumed from the way she dressed that she was much older than me. I saw now the dry skin of the emaciated where before I had seen wrinkles. I saw a young woman wearing the thrift store costume of a much older woman, I began to sense that she was hiding something. We were finally given our first paycheck. At last, I had enough for rent and food. The extra leftover felt luxurious. I began to buy fruit from a food cart to supplement my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at lunch. A little clamshell of beautiful fresh strawberries and watermelon with some mint sprinkled in. There was a kind older social worker I sat in the sun with while I ate this fruit, a comfortable woman named Shelley who talked about her grandchildren and the weather and books. During those months, Shelley became a good acquaintance, if not a friend. I had no friends. I wanted none. But one day, I felt the joy of my extra money and bought a second clamshell of fruit to take back to Anais, who, as far as I could tell, only ever had soup she sipped from a beige plastic thermos. I handed it to her, and she looked at me, wary of my gift. Then a softness settled into her shoulders, and she said a quiet thank you, and ate the fruit slowly with little grunts of appreciation, saving half of it to take home to her girl. After that, things were more balanced between us. I'd grown used to her turmeric swallowing. She grew comfortable enough with me not to hide that, as she worked, she was listening to the voice of an evangelical minister in her earphones. I had heard of this man. My roommate in college, a former evangelical, spoke scathingly about him, calling the minister a charlatan and a hypocrite and a serial seducer of young boys. I had committed to my dispassionate life, though, and didn't mention the rumors to Anais. Who was I to ruin her pleasure in this form of God? I liked it even when, once in a while as she listened, she nodded with a radiant smile on her face. Soon she began to use the landline in front of me, which we weren't allowed to use. It was for the actual social workers who resented us. To talk to the mechanic who was always fixing something or other, carburetor hose, tire, on her Vanagon. Vanagon, I asked. She smiled, then seemed to make a decision, and took her wallet out of her pocketbook, and from it pulled a photo of a boxy olive green Volkswagen van. My home, she said proudly, I bought a cash, and so I don't have to pay rent. It's got everything, a bed my girl and me share, and a table, and a little kitchenette, and a toilet, but the shower's broken. and I'm saving up to fix it. We can up and go whenever we want. Say there's another earthquake, which there will be, mark my words, all we do is get in the van again and drive to somewhere safe. Then she seemed to regret having said this much, and to all my questions afterward, she frowned and shook her head. I am sure I would never have discovered what Anais was running from if I hadn't come back from the bathroom one day to hear her on the landline pledging a thousand dollars to the evangelical charlatan's overseas ministry. I must have let out an incredulous sound because she looked at me and made a furious face. She said that she would send a check and slammed the receiver down. Then she stood up quivering with rage, and said loudly that it was her money. She could do whatever she wanted with it. All the other temps stopped working to look at us. I said, you're right. For the rest of the morning, Anais typed on her keyboard so hard that I was afraid she might break it. This was our six month anniversary of the digitizing project, and we were surprisingly over our quota. Our supervisor, a sweaty new college graduate who looked like all the frat boys I'd gone to school with, celebrated our achievement by buying us a stack of pizzas and a sheet cake. He also forgot where we were, and the gravity of what we were doing, and bought a couple of 24 packs of cold beer. I watched from across the room as Anais stood silently in a little knot of people, sipping a beer so fast that it was clear to me she had never in her life drunk one before. I don't think she would have had one now if I hadn't upset her so deeply that morning. I watched with dismay as she opened a second beer. This she drank even faster, and I watched her give a little burp into her fist, and the people in the ring around her all at once leaned back a little, perhaps because of a sudden waft of spice. There was a speech I didn't listen to. I was watching Anais wobble. Her eyes grew a little loose behind her thick lenses. I made my way around the room until I was standing right behind her. The speech ended, everyone applauded, and began shuffling out of the conference room, and I caught Anais' arm as she began to move but tripped on nothing and began to fall. She looked at me. "Uh Uh-oh, she said. I steered her into the bathroom so quickly that I was able to pull her hair back into a bun at her nape before she vomited into the toilet. She retched and retched neatly like a cat, except for in the first torrent when some puke had splashed up onto her chin, her glasses, and the high seventies bow of her shirt. She sat bleary and sweating on the side of the sink while I wet a paper towel and wiped her face, then ran her glasses under the water and tried to clean the bow by dabbing it with a fresh towel. I saw that it attached to the collar of her shirt with a series of tiny buttons all the way around and began to unbutton them one by one. She watched me. Without the glasses obscuring her face, she looked young, my age. She was not unpretty, I saw with surprise. I undid the last button and took the end of the bow to pull it open, but she put her small hand over mine, squeezed, and looked me in the face. Then she pulled the end, and the bow fell away. Her neck was scrawny and pale. Across it, there was a raised purple scar that stretched from beneath one ear all the way to the other. Almost killed me, she said. Luce's dad. I saw then why she was so wily, so secretive, why she lived with her child in a van, why the ability to escape trumped every other need. So now you know why nobody gets to tell me what to do ever again, she said. I thought about what to say while I washed out the bow with hand soap and hot water, then held it under the hot air dryer. The fabric was shiny, synthetic, thin from wear, and didn't take long to dry. I had found nothing to say by the time I began buttoning it back around her collar. Gently, I tied the bow in a great loose loop that swallowed up Anais's angry scar. Then Anais leaned forward and kissed me gently on the lips. She tasted like turmeric and beer and vomit, and I moved my head away. But as I did, her face changed, a horror entered it, and she snatched up her glasses and ran out the door. I spent some time cleaning up the bathroom. When I came out, she had left a note on my keyboard. Sick. Forgive me. Won't happen again. I didn't get to tell her that it was all right, that though I didn't want it to happen again either, I didn't mind that it had taken place once. By the next day, Anaïs had built such a strong wall around herself that I was never going to be able to reach her again. Not once during the next few months did she speak to me about anything other than work-related matters. I tried to get her to talk about Luce, but she wouldn't. She was gone closed. I had done some violence that I wasn't at that time capable of understanding. As the silence between us grew, I began to be unable to sleep at night, thinking about Anais's girl. Every day, the Every day, her little flower of a face looked down at me from the photo above the computer. When Anais was in the bathroom, or slowly measuring out her turmeric, I would look at her and think about how she sent her money to that disgusting evangelical charlatan. And then I would think about the van again, that she could never keep running properly, and what would happen if Lucy's father found them when the vehicle was going through one of its many sulks if they would be able to get away from him, if Anais would be too holy to fight him off if he were to try to murder her again. After a while, I had thought about Anais and her daughter so constantly that I grew angry. It began to seem wildly irresponsible for any mother to waste her money on religion and vehicle maintenance, to fritter away the means by which she could get an actual apartment, not a box on wheels, to choose not to build up a safety net to protect her child. There was only a flimsy aluminum door between the tiny girl and all the danger in the world. As if sensing my anxiety, one weekend, Griselda told me a story about her life. Once, she said, in the 1980s, a very wealthy lover got so mad at her while they were on his yacht in the Caribbean that he slipped her a Mickey, and when she woke up, she was floating on a raft out at sea, sunburned and wearing only a bikini. She floated like this for a week or so, lost in the blazing sun during the day and the stars at night, surprised by two sudden rainstorms that put enough water in the bottom of the boat to keep her alive, circled by sharks, until she thought that she would simply jump into the waves and let the sea take her down into its hungry depths. But then she was rescued by a family with a sailboat whose father had wanted to write a book about their year on the seas. They thought they'd caught a mermaid— They carried her to a hospital in the British Virgin Islands where a doctor fell in love with her, but she had to break his heart and go home to her daughters, who were teenagers and hadn't even realized she was gone. "'That sounds like a difficult experience,' I said, as neutrally as I could. "'Oh, indeed, that was a very bad experience,' Griselda said contemplatively. "'But once I was out of the hospital, the hush money from my lover who had made me a castaway was excellent.' and she smiled her wide, gorgeous smile that was like an explosion in her face. One Friday, after Anais gave a curt little nod and said, Happy weekend, and slung her pocketbook over her shoulder, I followed her, though without at first meaning to. We were going in the same direction, and I simply continued on past my bus stop, drawn almost against my will. She walked with her martial step through the scorching streets of Redwood City, probably not wanting to probably not wanting to spend money on bus fare. I stopped watching from behind a tree as she entered a cinder block daycare and came out holding the hand of her daughter. She was smiling down at Luce, and the girl was talking excitedly up to her. They walked slowly for a few blocks to a library, and I lingered at the window of a convenience store across the street, pretending to agonize over a rack of gum, until they came out again, the little girl with a book tucked under her arm. I followed them as the road twisted into a copse of bay laurels and cypresses, where I saw the Vanagon hidden by the thick shade. There was the flicker of a kerosene light in the window. I saw that the night had begun to deepen. There was the smell of cooking, garlic and some kind of starch like pasta. But seeing the dark forms of Anais and Luce moving in the light made me ashamed of myself, and I quickly left the copse. In self-punishment, I walked the three hours back home. This should have been the end of it. I should have let the distance sit between us. But I had not yet learned wisdom, and silence had not yet sunk into me as deeply as it later would. That week, I was sitting out in the noontime sun with the social worker, Shelley, eating cut fruit with mint and talking about Anais, about Luce, about the Vanigan. Just between you and me, I confided, I think she's an excellent mother, but I'm worried about her daughter. I think it's not impossible that she doesn't take the girl to get her shots. The preacher she listens to doesn't believe in vaccines. And Shelley nodded slowly, smiling, which at the time I took to be agreement with my assertions of confidentiality, but which I came to understand did not commit her to anything like silence or discretion or inaction. I ask myself now if some part of me wanted Anais to be jolted, if I wanted obscurely to force her to find a solid place for her child, if I knew that she and her daughter might be separated. I would never have put it like this to myself at the time. There are moments in our lives when our sense of our own goodness is so shaky that we build elaborate defenses against the possibility that we may be far worse than we fear. I have come to think that I had a secret intention, held at the very center of my actions, so small and dark that I pretended not to see it then. I could not see it even a decade later. It is only now, when I know myself to be good and bad in equal measure, that I can glimpse it, if barely. As I took care of the mastiff that weekend, Griselda sat in the courtyard in a plastic chair soaking her feet in a tub. She was telling me another of her tall tales, this time about the period when she taught philosophy at Princeton back in the 70s and 80s and had an affair with Derrida, or was it Nagel? It's astonishing how things get confused as one ages, she said. I filled the water bowl, half smiling at the idea of Griselda as a philosopher, when her thinking was so muddled she couldn't get her lovers straight. Then she said, with her eyes closed and her face turned up to the sun, in those years I felt the world stirring within me. I was so alive then. I turned off the water and said quickly, Yes, that's exactly how it is, exactly. I told Griselda that I'd felt that way ever since I moved into the cottage eight months ago. Every day I sit with my tea out under the oak tree, I told her, and I press my ear to it and hear the way the world and the trees seem to have found a resonance within me. It's like a triangulation, the world, the tree, and me. Then I saw a bee land on the chair, close to Griselda's bared shin, and I said, careful bee. She bent and looked at it, then looked across the yard, at the geraniums, where more bees were crawling in and out of the vivid red flowers. I watched as slowly her eyes lifted above the wall of bamboo to the top of the great oak tree, and she held her hand in a visor and squinted, looking there for a long time, frowning. When she dropped her hand in her face, there was something like pity. Ah, she said, I'm so sorry. It's not the resonance of the world or whatever you think it is. It's bees. I couldn't believe that I'd missed them in their thick orbiting of the top of the tree, where there must have been a hollow. Griselda forbade me to go into my backyard, saying that she was sorry there were legal issues. One of her former tenants had been stung and had an anaphylactic reaction and had to go to the hospital, and now she was be as a landlord. She couldn't afford such hospital bills again. She brought me a gift of six beautiful amber-colored drinking glasses in apology so that I wouldn't have to drink out of old pasta sauce jars anymore, and that night I sat on the cold wood stove to drink my tea from an amber glass and felt a longing to be next to the tree as usual. I woke on Sunday morning to a feeling that something was wrong and stood blearily in the shower, trying to understand what it could be. At last, I lifted my eyes to look through the skylight where, at the top of the tree, a man had belayed himself and was spraying the hive, a can of chemicals in each hand. At the moment I looked up, he was looking down at me but was oddly faceless, which I couldn't understand until I had screamed and cowered on the floor, and crawled naked out of the shower, and thrown on my clothes, and run out into the driveway barefoot, my hair dripping. Griselda was standing colossal there, supervising the spraying from below. "'Oh, don't worry,' she said. "'His name is Gabriel. He does handiwork for me sometimes.' Yes, unfortunately, he did have to spray at this time in the morning, she said. It is when the bees are sleepy and won't sting so much. Yes, he has a face, she said. I just made him wear three pairs of my pantyhose over his head to protect himself. And at last, she said, impatiently, Ah, Liebchen, he doesn't care for your nakedness. He is up in a tree being stung by bees. On Monday morning, the tree did not hum its happiness. At work, there was no Anaïs. She did not come in, did not even call to say she wasn't coming in, my supervisor complained. My cubicle felt lonely, and the face of the little girl looked down at me, an accusation there. When, after work, I walked all the way to the little grove of laurels and cypresses, the Vanagon was, of course, gone. There was an indentation in the soil and the shape of Anais and her child's life. The next day, though I stood outside the daycare and waited to see her, Anaïs did not come to pick up her daughter, and the women finally locked the door. It was clear that the child had not come in that day. I grew so concerned I could hardly sleep. After a few days of standing on the street watching, I summoned the courage to go into the daycare, which smelled like paste and piss and crackers, and asked the lady in charge about Luce and Anaïs. A window slammed shut in her soft face, and in Spanish she called the other two childminders over, and the three of them stood in a ring around me defensively, saying that Anais was gone, that she did not want to be found, that I had better forget her. The state had come around asking questions, the lady in charge said. I wasn't someone sent from the state, was I? Oh, God, no, I said. I'm not a threat, I wanted to say. Then I understood that to any woman on the run, the fact that I was there trying to find her meant that I was indeed a threat. And so I began to come home from work directly, to change into my running clothes as quickly as I could, and I would go out into the late afternoon and twilight and night, trying to spot Anais' van in the towns all around Redwood City my heart lifting every time I saw an olive-colored van and crashing down again when I understood that it wasn't Anaïs's, that she had gone somewhere too far for me to run to. I began to run farther and farther at night in expiation, but also looking for her. I am so sorry, I wanted to tell her. I'm not someone you need to run from. I would never harm you. I would never ask the authorities to take your child from you. You do not need to fear me but she had gone somewhere out of the reach of my contrition. A month passed and then another. My body had become whittled with all the running. The bees came back, and I didn't tell Griselda. I just sat in the chilly, bright mornings, drinking my tea and listening to the low song inside the trunk. I took care of the mastiff before work every morning. Some days Griselda joined me and told impossible stories from her life, and other days she would leave a gift on my doorstep, a bottle of hot sauce, an expensive face cream barely used. The only thing marring my happiness was the black spot, the sin of having sent a traumatized woman bolting out of her life. For this, I still cannot forgive myself. On one of the nights I spent running through the cool dark streets looking for Anais' Vanikin. Griselda shuffled to my door while I was gone to deliver a water-buckled copy of Life and Fate that she had discovered tossed by a Mountain View neighbor. She had seen my stash of books and knew how much I loved to read, she wrote in the lumpy copy, signing her full name. When she was returning through the gate, the mastiff, a strange puppyishness, perhaps overwhelming him, rose up on his hind legs, all two hundred pounds of him and put his two great paws on Griselda's shoulders, knocking the old woman down. In falling, she hit her head on one of the enormous geranium planters, and something shifted and bubbled up inside her skull. The fall had also cut her scalp deeply, and a black pool of blood slowly grew on the stones behind her head. The dog would have barked his alarm, but could not. He skulked into the bamboo thickets, knowing he had done something terribly wrong. That night, I ran so far that I couldn't run any more, and I walked home, cold and nearly blind with exhaustion. I picked up the book off my mat, entered the cottage, took a long hot shower, and slept until mid morning. When I came out to feed and water the mastiff, I saw through the bars of the gate the purple soles of Griselda's feet facing me. I rushed to her. Griselda was still alive, her eyes glassy. She was speaking. Oh, she murmured, it's you. The sun is bright. Verastet derostet. No, I am not fond of organ meat. I ran inside, picked my way through the fetid piles of junk through which she must have burrowed for so many years, unable to feel yet the shock of the mess, and found her phone and called an ambulance. Then, back outside, I tried to press a towel on the wound of her scalp, but the blood had already clotted. She had rips on the shoulders of her nightgown where the mastiff's claws had fallen and a few bloody scratches on the skin beneath. The dog watched from the shadows his chin on his paws. While we waited, Griselda spoke, and amid her wild talk, her nonsense words, the long phrases in German, the directives to call her daughters whose numbers were in the book by the phone, and to please, 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 Liebchen, tidy up before the ambulance comes, she said two things that I later wrote down. She said, We have art so as not to die of the truth. She said that in every human, there is both an animal and a god wrestling unto death. The first was Nietzsche. The second, I have found nowhere. I think it was Griselda's own philosophy. Griselda's daughters arrived while she was in the hospital. The doctors had induced a medical coma to help her brain heal, but the prognosis wasn't good. I had sent the Mastiff to the pound. He had to be dragged out to the truck by two men coughing his sad, soundless barks. He strained toward me as he passed, putting his cold nose on my leg, but I was too young to find in my heart any forgiveness for a murder. I met the daughters when they at last came to their mother's home, after 48 hours at the hospital when they were too exhausted to sit vigil at Griselda's side any longer. They saw me waiting as they pulled into the drive and got out of the car, spiky with rage. Why weren't you there to check on her? They yelled, these skinny women dressed in expensive black. Why was that awful dog not under control? Why didn't anyone tell us she was so far gone? I kept my eyes down and said nothing. They went into Griselda's house. I couldn't move my body. They came out again, their faces crumbling at how their mother had been living. Sorry, they said. We're so sorry. It's not your fault. We're just so sad. They stayed in a hotel for a month. One of the daughters would sit by Griselda, who was swollen and absent in her hospital bed, while the other put on work gloves and took armfuls of trash out to the hired skip. I stopped going to my job so that I could help with the clean-out, gathering up the newspapers and all sorts of things her neighbors had put out for trash and she had saved. We slowly uncovered the excellent furniture that had lain for so long beneath it all which the daughters would be selling. We found treasures, Picasso prints, original stickly chairs. One day, I unearthed the painting that had fallen behind a headboard in the guest room. Is this a Mondrian? I asked. The daughter gave a little crow. Oh, she said it's here. We thought the robbers stole it. She hugged it to herself and took it back to her hotel room, and though I wanted to see it again and would not, my hands still felt warm after having touched something so beautiful. Only later did I realize that the daughters had mentioned the robbers, which meant that Griselda's story about them was likely true. I hadn't believed it. In truth, I hadn't believed any of her stories. They were all so composed, as if she had made them up long before. The daughters warmed to me and began buying me sandwiches when it was time for lunch. And so one day I asked if the other stories that Griselda had told me were also true. The daughter I was with that day, the one who wore expensive European glasses with tiny blue frames, looked at me with surprise. What story, she said. I told her about Griselda's being the daughter of the industrialist in Germany and how the toy store was open just for her on Christmas Eve, of her modeling career, and of Andy Warhol how she had been lost at sea for two weeks, how she'd been a philosopher at Princeton. Then I saw, briefly, in the daughter's face, a look of such yearning that I stopped talking. Yes, she said at last, all of this is true. Griselda doesn't lie, has never lied in her life. Huh, I said. No, you don't get it, the daughter said, blinking quickly. It's just that she never talked about any of it any of it, with us, even when we begged her to tell us. And yet she gave those stories to you, a total stranger. Griselda never woke up. A truck came and took away the skip filled with junk. An auction house came and took away all the furniture. It turned out that, underneath the furniture, the roots of the bamboo thickets had been pushing up through the terracotta floors. Griselda was cremated without a service. The daughters gave me one of the lesser Picasso prints and said I could stay in the cottage rent-free until the place was sold. I found a job as an administrative assistant at Stanford, basically a receptionist with excellent health care. Two months after Griselda died, a year into my quiet life alone in the cottage, I felt a disturbance in the air in front of my desk at work and looked up, and standing there was a woman, and that woman was my mother. She wore a floral dress I'd never seen before and was cupping her hands to her mouth. My mother said, "I found you." She had tracked me down through my social security number, which I'd given when applying for my job at Stanford. I left the office early. My mother looked deeply uncomfortable as we toured the cottage, and then she suggested that she rent a hotel room in the city. At first there was a tension between us, a hesitancy, but she had always dreamed of San Francisco and had never been able to visit, and here she was, her face full of wonder, and the warmth between us returned sweetened. We spent the weekend sightseeing. I have pictures of my mother on a trolley, eating a bread bowl full of chowder, in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, in a sweatshirt she had to buy because she hadn't counted on its being so very cold in California. We split a bottle of wine the night before she flew back home, and she confessed that she thought I had been sucked into a prostitution ring or was on heroin or something, and she was going to have to rescue me, drag me home to that cold house with the wind coming through the drafty windows and too many children to a room. No, I said, I'm finding my own way to survive. For a long time, she had nothing to say to that. Then at last she gave a little shiver and said, It is so cold here. Aren't you so cold? I knew obscurely that she wasn't talking about the weather. At the airport, she hugged me and cried, and just as she was about to go through security, I watched as the new mother I'd seen all weekend, bright, laughing, eager, changed physically, bending down to take off her shoes and coming up slightly slumped, shoulders rounded, as if already facing her chaotic home, her baffled husband and noisy children, and all the heaviness that awaited her there. I held my breath, but she didn't look back before she disappeared through the gate. I had to leave the cottage not long after this. I moved away from the Bay Area a few years later. Life came for me, swallowed me up. I created my own family, and it has become my true north, which turns me in its direction no matter where I find myself, no matter all the changes that draw with astonishing swiftness over the face of the earth. Surely Anaïs's little girl is an adult now. I tell myself that, with a mother as loving as Anais, surely she is fine. Still, the cottage and Griselda's slowly sinking house and even the vast and perfect oak tree, all of which took up an entire city block of the most expensive real estate in the country, must have been crushed and replaced by buildings meant for wealthier and more prosaic souls. I once lived in golden light in California, that light lived within me, and though it returns for spells here and there, that same golden light has never been with me as steadily as it was that year. In fact, there are often times when my life seems so small that the darkness in me has no outlet, and it keeps circling faster and faster, tighter and tighter, until it seems that there is nothing but darkness endlessly spinning. My emergence from these times is painful and very slow. I have to go far away to recover myself. My family has weathered these flights of mine before. They have learned to accept them, because in the past I have always returned, and when I do, I am a mother who sees her children fully. In this pale apartment on another continent where I have come to be alone now, I have been waking, to my surprise, into brightness and peace, marveling that beauty could come so suddenly after such deep and, I believed, permanent shadow. Grace is a gift undeserved, yet given anyway. In these hills, I finally feel again that deep yearning, not for anything in particular, but for the wild whole being gladness that I knew for the first time in the cottage covered in moss and ferns in the shadow of the oak tree, where my freedom overwhelmed me. Sometimes, when I am doing nothing but listening to the birds that nest in the crags of the nearby castle, I think about how there are, constellated through the countryside all around this place, churches full of Madonnas, paintings and frescoes and sculptures. There are a thousand Madonnas here with a thousand different faces. Each Madonna wears the face of a particular mortal woman whom the artist loved. Each woman is one in whom the animal was briefly overcome by the God that lived within her.
0: That was Lauren Groff, reading her story, Annunciation. She's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2011. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Alejandro Zambra reads Loneliness by Bruno Schultz, translated from the Polish by Celina Wioniewska. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.